Loneliness And is supported by the Cost of Loneliness Project, which strives to create a national imperative to spark commitment to and investment in combating loneliness and its devastating emotional, physical, and economic consequences. For more information, visit www.thecostofloneliness.org. I'm Kate Lumpkin. And I'm Lucy Rose. And this is Loneliness And. Sometimes you sit down with someone and you quickly realize why they are called a living legend. David Mixner is one of those people. He is a political strategist and civil rights activist who's written best-selling books and blogs on progressive politics, foreign policy, LGBT rights, and wildlife advocacy. Do a quick Google of his name and your jaw will probably hit the floor when you see all that he's done. Mixner has been a leader in American politics and international human rights for over 40 years. And this week, we had the privilege of speaking with David and his good friend and nationally recognized leader in the field of civil rights and social justice, Alan Van Kempel, about how a life of dedicated service and leadership can both teach you and take its toll. We are so excited to have you here today, David and Alan. Uh, we are just so thrilled that you decided to join us. It is wonderful to be here with a living legend, <laughs> as you would call yourself, which is very fair and very accurate. Oh, for sure. Oh, for sure. <laughs> um, but you know, we like to start our podcast, uh, Loneliness And, by filling in kind of the blank. So, Loneliness And, what, what do you want to title this podcast today? Uh, loneliness and Activism and Leadership. Okay. Yeah. So I mean, of I the think the obvious it, question is why? Well, because I think most people feel that if you're a very visible personality in the world, that mm. you can't possibly be lonely. And as I've gotten older, I'm 71, and I'm very blessed because I'm still active, but uh, I've come through a process where I've watched the last over 300 friends die of HIV and AIDS. Mm. And their last acts often involved activism. And so I've become old as an activist and as a writer and as a performer, and I still have lots to do. Uh, But at the end, uh, like most senior citizens, I go home to four empty walls. Hmm. And so you go and you get out and you're proclaimed and you're proclaimed a good leader. I've been very blessed. I have many, many young friends, but I have very few friends my own age because they're all dead. As I said, uh, 85% of gay men of my age in the bell were at the peak of the epidemic, died of HIV and AIDS. So as I said, the remaining 15% are the most boring people I've ever met. (laughs) And they will not listen to this podcast. (laughs) Because they survived. (laughs) (laughs) So it's lonely. And people don't assume public figures are lonely. And often they're the most lonely people around. Why do you think that is? Uh, I think for two reasons, Alan. I think one, because they have a public persona. Yes. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't, and that public persona, including myself, I'm speaking for myself here, Mm -hmm. doesn't allow people to get much below that. Mm. It's very, very few people that I will uh, be vulnerable and raw with. Mm -hmm. As I say, raw and vulnerable. Uh, Number two is, that most of the people that you attract being such a public figure, and for me it's been six decades now, 
six wow. decades of activism it's as a liberation theologist, is they have a perception of your life mm-hmm. that they either want to be your partner or a friend because they think that you live this glamorous life with all the people you know and all of the things you do, but they don't understand that it's work. It is hmm. sometimes very difficult, like yeah. when I got arrested in front of the White House, all the people who were proclaiming my fame before then dropped me like a hot potato. This is in the 90s over And in four years, I ended up selling watches and pawn shops to pay for my rent because all of the people who said, I want to be part of your life, I want to be this, thought I was toxic with the Clintons and would have nothing to do with me overnight. Now, in fairness, I knew that would be the price I had to pay. I went into that with open eyes. I'm one of the fortunate ones that I had the experience and knowledge before that to happen, not to become a victim. And I understood where they were coming from, and so I didn't go around and whine and try to martyr myself and do the 12 stations of the cross. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I, I knew what was coming. But also in partners, I mean people who say they want to be your partner and think they're in love with you, end up saying, do you really have to go to that tonight? And I said, yeah, I really do, because I'm raising money to feed children, or I'm raising money to save the elephants, or I'm trying to build awareness about HIV, or, uh, you know, these people who are exploited by the hotels because they have no union and they're illegal. So, you know, uh, yeah, I do. It's work. This idea that work takes priority and also that people fall in love with the idea of what they think you are, that, that is something that I think so many people in positions of power or positions of someone who, who might leave a legacy, I feel like that is a recurring theme that mm. we hear constantly of people, especially in this day and age where um, the media is everywhere. You cannot escape the media, especially if you are in a position of celebrity, every move is judged. Everything is is shown. Mm-hmm. People think they know who you are. Well, no, no they they think they know they are. They think they have a right to tell you that's who it. you should That's be. exactly what it is. And I mean, I have a favorite line. People come up and stick their finger in my chest, which is one of my least favorite things in the world. Is that a trigger for you? I just pointed yeah. my finger at him <laughs> very close to no, his no, chest. No. <laughs> and that might have been why he just said that. But, and say, <laughs> you've that. got to do this. Yeah. Because they think, as a person who is visibly active, that they have a right to tell me what to do. Now, they think they have that right for two reasons. That absolves them of any responsibility of doing something on their own. Oh, I talked to David Mixner and told him he had to do it, and then they go and don't do anything themselves. Yeah. And I point that out to him. I said, if you think you can do it better than I can, go do it. Yeah. And I'll support you. Yeah. Well, that ends the conversation usually, but if it doesn't... <laughs> And they keep pounding that finger in my chest. What I say is, listen, Mm. I don't hit an organization. I'm not running for office. I've never accepted an appointment in government. You don't have a say in this. I'm a dictatorship of one. You don't have a vote. Which is lonely in its own right. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask you, how Mm. do you handle that? There have been a lot of times in your life you've been lonely, is my best guess, including when you were young, um, by reading your book, and you made some pretty bold statements. Even the title of this particular book. Stranger Among Friends. Stranger Among Friends. Uh, You had to have been lonely. I've always felt that way. I I was alone in my family Uh, from day one. My uh, 
we didn't have electricity or running water to us 10. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mom cooked on a wood stove. She worked shift work. We started picking in Mr. Seabrook's fields, which is a little bit what my show's about uh-huh. next time. Uh, but my father beat the hell out of me. Didn't touch my sister, didn't touch my mother, didn't touch my brother, but really went after me. Uh, now, I was somewhat of a rebellious child. I know you all would find that hard no. to believe. But there was no place place you could turn as a child when you're singled out like that. And I think it had a lot to do with, I was different. I was gay. And I knew I was different. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's a very lonely place because, you know, even at five or six years old, kids don't censor themselves. No, no, they don't. They'll say, oh, look at that ugly man over there. And your mother will go, shh, shh, we don't say that in public. Yeah. You know, kids don't censor themselves because at that early age, they, Alan, you're a father. I'm sure you've had to say to your two I children. I worry every time what my kids are going to say when we're well, out in the public. Out. Yeah, that's right. They're so honest. Uh, <laughs> but to how, a fault. To a fault. How do so we honest. know as gay people at five, six, seven, eight years old that we could not tell a soul about Because hmm. of the reactions imagine. that you get from other people. Well, we didn't yeah. talk about it back then. In the 60s, you know, they, my only acknowledgement of gay people were they were either arrested in parks or put in mental institutions yeah. and yeah. had lobotomies. This, there were no centers. There were no magazines. Mm-hmm. There was nothing on television. Uh, but how did I get that information that I couldn't share that part of me? I'm always know. fascinated by that, but it's a very lonely place. But it taught me how to deal with loneliness. And... And, you know, I'm a liberation theologist. And I, you, you talk about that book, Stranger Among Friends, and, yes. I, and I'm very open and honest about my drug problem at an earlier age and alcoholism, which I've been clean and sober for 30 years. Congratulations. And, uh, and I talk very openly about sexuality. Mm-hmm. I'm always amazed with sexuality. That you can talk about genocide in the Congo, where six million people do, and you don't lower your voice, and you talk about making love last night, and everyone says, I made love last night. <laughs> we whisper about sexuality and, and don't lower our voice for some of the most obscene things that are taking place in the world. Yes. But it is, I thought when I was honest in my book about those two things, that that is what the feedback I would get, you know, from how how could you put that out publicly? And I put it out publicly because I wanted young people to know that you could do those things and still be admired and respected and successful later on in life. The thing I got the most feedback was I'm very spiritual. Hmm. And before I made a tough decision, like over, don't ask, don't tell, I prayed. Mm -hmm. And I wrote in the book how I prayed for Mm -hmm. the strength to not to become a victim and to understand those who didn't understand and to forgive them. People came at me with knives saying, you didn't play, pray. I mean, again, you separate yourself from people. Hmm. And not just one, but dozens. That was what they asphyxiated on from the book as the biggest negative. Why do you negative. think that's the case? Well, because I think a little bit organized religion has not been the greatest ally of uh, people struggling in the world. Religious-based bigotry. Yeah. Uh, Rory Moore Mm -hmm. type people. Uh, And I think a little bit 
it is not fit into their people don't like to be challenged yes that's so true people want you if you say i'm against the war then you're supposed to fit a profile of what someone against the war is like if you say i'm a democrat then you're not supposed to deviate from many of those things yes and i have always as alan can testify refused to play that game Mm -hmm. i am a spiritual person i have some conservative side dealing with economics I refuse to create a life to please others. Yes. I create a life. As I say, principles and values are basic. But the most important thing to understand about principles and values are not issues. They should never change. Issues come and go. You know, we'll get new knowledge maybe tonight about Trump that will change how we see the world tomorrow. Those are issues. Yes. But loving people, being of service to them, uh, doing your best to be honest, uh, uh, willing to be unpopular for your beliefs, are principles and values. Mm -hmm. And if you know what they are, you don't have to struggle. So David, in those lonely times for you, as you think about these principles and values, how did you deal with that? Where did you find your strength? What, what kind of kept you going to be brave and to do mm-hmm. all the amazing things you did? Uh, there's an old Bertram Russell quote. Bertram Russell is the only person that's won, I think, the Nobel Peace Prize and the Prize for Physics. In his autobiography, it goes, yeah. three passions, simple but overwhelmingly strong, have governed my life. Mm-hmm. The longing for love, the search for knowledge, and an unbearable pity for the suffering of others. And so in those times, what Gandhi called our wilderness years, when you were alone, uh, you didn't have consensus about your actions from others, that people thought, uh, maybe in a majoritative way, that you were wrong, and sometimes I have been. Uh, Those are the moments you're most lonely. It's not when you're popular. You know, and surrounded by people saying you're a living legend, it's when your values and your principles demand that you go against the grain at times of what people expect you to be. And they expect you to be that because they don't want to be challenged. They don't want to have to think this through. And by refusing to be that, they get real angry because you make them think it through. They really get angry. Well, you know, everyone is, that's my favorite. Everyone believes. And I said, well, clearly not everyone does. I can at least point to one person who doesn't. Right. So we now have to change the words. Gandhi says we have to value words of action. So how do I deal with loneliness? Mm-hmm. Most of the time when I'm most lonely, I search for knowledge. Ah. And I play beautiful music. Uh, and I like bluegrass. I like... Uh, country and I love classical music Mm -hmm. and I love opera Mm -hmm. Uh, I play read magnificent books of biographies and historical of how other people uh, dealt with their uh, challenges in life Uh, and I love animals and I spend a lot of time with animals Uh, I'm responsible and no one else is for my own journey. Mm-hmm. So if I'm lonely, it's a little bit like getting arrested 
you can either become a victim of that loneliness and sit there and say, no one's visited me in two weeks, or no one even remembers I'm here, or I'm eating two hot dogs a night because I don't have money, and why aren't they helping me? All that does is, is make you a victim. Uh, but on the other hand, if you sit down in a nice soft chair and you have a good view out your window, which I do, and you have beautiful music playing and maybe a friend will call and talk to you like Alan Van Capel, <laughs> and who's one of the best friends you could ever have. One of the best calls I can make. Uh, thank you. And, uh, and I create a place of beauty, of music, of art, I've written a thousand poems that no one has seen. I have a question for you. The, you had uh, several health scares over the last several years that you're open about this, depleted your finances. And earlier this year, you sent an email to, I don't know, 20, 30 people and told everybody that your finances had been depleted and that you needed to downsize to a studio apartment and that you needed to sell um, a lot of your art, which is unbelievable <laughs> art and memorabilia. And, and I wanted to ask you, because I think you could feel lonely in that moment or you could also feel liberated in that moment or any place in between. And I just want to see if you would be good enough to talk a little bit about that experience with us it was mixed i mean i sold all of it you did end up selling most of it uh and i felt blessed that i had that art that most of it was gifts from the artists themselves as a thank you over the years some very expensive pieces that people got at fire sale mm -hmm. um and it was painful but it was all right i mean i can't take them with me so Sooner or later, someone's going to get them. And they came in handy at this economic crisis. What stunned me, though, is I left myself raw and vulnerable, as I like to say, to a good 50 people who I sent that out to. It was 50 people. Yeah, and I heard back from two. Wow. Hmm. Others found out I was selling some stuff because of people like you who bought something. Mm -hmm. And the word of mouth got out. But to the wealthy people that I sent that out to, who I have worked with for years, they didn't even send a response. Not like, we're sorry you're going through a troubled time, uh, we don't need artwork, maybe we'll see if a friend does, or just, David, I'm sorry, we don't have a room on the walls, but uh, we love you. That clearly, that email, which you saw, mm -hmm. it was very vulnerable. Yes. Very powerful email. And very tough for me to write. Fragwise. I know. Uh, and out of that 50, two people actually responded from the email. Now, I sold all the art because I kept sending stuff out and people, the word got about. Yeah. Uh, but when I say two, I mean no response of people who I've known for years. And... I'd like to say, well, maybe they didn't get it, but I sent it out twice. Mm -hmm. And not a note, not a, 
hey, listen, we're going up to our second home in the Hamptons. Why don't you come out for the weekend? Hmm. You know? <laughs> and let's talk about, you know, just being a friend. Two responded. Hmm. Now, what about that? And how did I deal with it? Yeah. First, got a little depressed and felt very lonely. I thought, after all these years and after 50, six decades yeah. now, it's next year, 18 will be my 58th year of serving others. You would think, I always believed that when I got to this point, people would be there for me. Mm. And then after two weeks of moping and living in fear until some of us started selling I laughed and I said this is no different than anything else you're responsible for your own path so you can sit here and end up in assisted living or something because I had been very sick critical condition eight times the last time they gave me a 5% chance of survival I was on life support for a week you saw me I saw you and I had septus and 106.7 fever and 60 degree uh, wow. blood pressure. I don't know. I think that you've been in there so often. I think everybody yeah. knows you now by name. Yeah, they do. And, and but, then they run when they see you they coming. See you coming. They see you coming and they say, he's oh, back. no, he's no. back. Quickly, let's go down the hall. I need Can vacation. I switch shifts with you? Oh, you've never seen people run. Liar. No, no. Liar. True story, by the way. I did say to David one time, I went to visit you one of the earlier times in the hospital. And the, uh, David Patterson, who was the governor at the time of New York, had actually called me just to chat and say hi. And he said, how are you doing? I said, actually, I'm a little down today. He said, why are you down? I said, well, you don't know, but my friend David Mixner... No, actually, he's in the hospital today. I'm about to go up and speak to him. So can I speak to you later? And David um, said, I know who David Mixner is. Do you think he'd like a visit from me? I said, absolutely, he'd like a visit from you. So I said to David, is it okay if I bring David Patterson to come and see you? He says, yes, absolutely. David must have said to somebody else, well, when we showed up to the hospital, there was a phalanx of, like, administrators and whatnot because the governor is now visiting. And who is this guy? And why didn't you give us any warning? He goes to go visit David. Well, David Patterson thought he was going to be a very sweet guy and he arranged for <laughs> David to be in a very special room up like where the Saudis stay when they yes. stay at New York Hospital Beyonce all marble speech. and the whole thing yes so I didn't tell David because I thought we'd surprise him so David's moved to the middle of the night I learned don't wake the bear while he's sleeping and moved to the middle of the night David wakes up goes it's into this marks like ma- tell mausoleum yes. yes I got it I'm here and that building way over there was where the couch for visitors was. And I said, I went out of here. And called me on the phone oh, and no. said, I woke up and thought I died and was oh, in a mausoleum. There is, there is nobody here. There's no sounds of equipment. There are no nurses running around. I'm alone in this room. Put me back where I was beforehand. I said, oh, we thought there was a nice thing. He says, I'll ask for help. And you do know how to do that. So I just want to say one thing, because I think you're so good at coping, yeah. right, and figuring out how to care for yourself. You do something which I just think is so spectacular. My family's tradition, we visit David on Christmas Eve day. Mm. And our kids get to know Uncle David. And it's one of the things they look forward to. In fact, it's one of the reasons why we don't go down to Washington on Christmas Eve. Because we know we get to see David on Christmas Eve day. David has what he calls Orphan Christmas. And I I want you to share with us a little bit about Orphan Christmas. Well, Orphan Christmas started uh, in 1986. My partner is diagnosed with AIDS. And his family... 
didn't know he was gay and certainly didn't know he had AIDS, and so he refused to go home because he was clearly sick and couldn't bring up enough courage to tell. And he had always gone home, and I had gone home, so I said, well, I'm not going home. I'm not leaving you here alone. And he was very depressed. He was very sort of dependent on people to provide him his joy. And uh, so I said, well, maybe I'll get some people. There's got to be other people who are in a similar situation mm -hmm. who have AIDS and can't go home. So the first year, I found 12. And we had 12 of us for dinner. And I went out and got them all gifts. And it was very nice. And uh, then the second year, I found 24. So I went out and got them all gifts. And who are these people? Please. People who had HIV, whose mm. parents had rejected them no. and couldn't go home because they had yep. sarcosis, oh, yeah. sarcoma, yeah. Yeah. lesions. Yes. Well, in by 1994, we had to move it out of my house to a huge mansion in Beverly Hills because we had 250. Whoa. And we had all the restaurants cater it and pay for it. Yeah. I got the Los Angeles Opera to put four singers together who came and sang Christmas carols. We got the LA Philharmonic to replace the carolers with string quartet playing Christmas carols. And then we got different merchants and we did gift bags for all of the people and we had volunteers wrap them up. And we had a spectacular Christmas Eve. Yeah. And I still do it on a smaller... So now talk about what you do, that? but talk about what you do now. Because I think it's so interesting. I mean, I have people who are in shows or who can't make it home for Christmas. I know those people. And, right. and I bring them around a table at the Glass House Tavern in oh. Mixner's Corner. And, and they all get a gift and they all feel like they have a Christmas. And but you do that for people. And I well, think that's what's I'm, so interesting. And everybody there is, is so, is, are so much younger than you are. Well, I have to be younger than I am. Because <laughs> everyone, everyone in, I knew, I mean, look, there were 30 guys I hung around with. We were in a uh, therapy group, mm -hmm. the, uh, group therapy to sort of help each other come out of the closet in 1976. And we all became very close friends, the 30 of us. Obviously, if you're going to spill your beads <laughs> to each other, you're going to develop a, a bond and affection. Yeah. I was the only one that made it past 40. And the only one still alive today. So normally, at least half of those people would still be alive today, if not most. And I'd be going to dinner parties with them and sharing memories and taking trips and yeah. have peers my own age. Well, almost all my friends are a generation or two younger because my generation is gone. And yeah. it was gone at 40. Hmm. Uh, so you just... But you're responsible. You know, I get up every morning and I have a prayer. Here, here I go with the prayer. I was like, you don't pray. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> and it's a very simple one. I, I wake up and my mind feels 21. Hmm. And I move a leg and I feel 30. I move the second leg and I feel 40. And I swing them out over on the side of the bed and I know I'm over 60. This is before I stand up and I know I'm 71. But... <laughs> While I'm sitting on the side of the bed, I say, Dear God, no matter what you require that I face on this remarkable life journey that you have given me, please give me the gift of finding a moment of joy in this day. Hmm. 
And every day I look for a moment of joy. I seek it to create it if mm -hmm. I have to. Mm -hmm. Filled with laughter and joy or music or dance. But every day I make sure I go to bed without having a moment of joy during that day, no matter how bad my day is. Because laughter and joy is what we're trying to create in the world, right? Yes, mm -hmm. yes. Isn't that what we want for everybody? Food on their table for their kids and laughter and families around table like we are blessed with? Yes. Uh, and if I don't have it, how am I going to describe it to them? Mm. I will come across as some sort of cold Trotskyite ideologue. You know, not having experienced it. Now I've got a question for you, Alan. You have two children, two sons. How old are they? Six and three and a half. What are you doing to prepare them for these kind of things in life? For which kind of thing? The loneliness? Yeah. No, it is... Um, I think it's being really... Being comfortable being with yeah. themselves. I think it's really hard to... I think, you know, it's so interesting. We just had this conversation last night. Ethan had a timeout for something that had happened. It actually ended up being about nothing that had happened. And he started to cry. And he started to talk about recess. Mm. And uh, my son has a, a speech disorder uh, called... Um, uh, pragmatic communications disorder which means in social situations he has trouble with the use of language it doesn't come out as fast as he wants it to come out and it makes it difficult for him to have conversations with people now I know this because I stuttered till I was 13 years old I had a very severe stammer and so I remember that recess uh, time as well and Ethan you know said the kids don't want to play with me mm. and uh and they say I mess up the games because in this disorder, it's hard to hear multiple rules uh, and multiple step directions for games. And try sitting and talking to a six-year-old about like how wonderful a kid you are when all you want to do is be around your friends and all you want to do is be loved included. And, the, and included. And the interesting thing is he, all of these kids are his friends. He races into the school with him. They all love him and that. But in that setting, they've determined he's sort of a non-entity. And... Trying to figure out, and last night we wrote four versions of an email to our school trying to say, how can we help navigate this for him in recess? So I think it's a really hard thing. I think if we got better talking about it yes. and being okay, if we did more to talk about it, to destigmatize what it is to be lonely, then more people would talk about it. I was so inspired, and I just want to offer this reflection on the letter of 50 people that the letter to 50 people that you wrote about your financial circumstances. You may have only gotten two responses back, but I guarantee you that in that group of 50, there are people going through pain and hardship. Yes. And I guarantee you that your being vulnerable in that moment is sitting with someone in that group of 50. Mm. And that will move somebody at some point um, to, uh, that will move somebody at some point um, to think about their own experience. If it's, and, and, one, if it's one person, then it was worth doing. But I find it hard to believe that there's people not lonely in that group of 50. I have a... He, the, Siri wants to be Siri a part of our conversation. She's Maybe lonely. Maybe just bring her in. She's like, sorry, Alan, I just so desperately want to join you. I have a personal question. Speaking about being inspired, this conversation is so terribly inspiring to me. I am someone... I don't work in politics. I work in entertainment, which I guess is its own form of politics yes, it in its own way. Yes, it and my industry is 
definitely going through some major changes right now and it is a goal of mine to be at the forefront of those changes and I have found in my speaking out and in my trying to make this an industry that is open and safe mm. and a place for people to be able to feel vulnerable to create the art that is important right now one of my goals is to create those safe spaces and those safe environments to allow people to feel like they understand the rules and that they have the freedom to break them and change them and in doing that I have alienated myself from a lot of people in my industry who don't mm. want to change and break the rules, who don't want to make this an industry for everybody, who want to keep this a story of, uh, these are the stories that are important to tell and they are that of old white men and we don't need to tell anybody else's stories or that these are the people who need to remain in power and those are a specific type of person. Mm. I am a young... Old white men. Oh, great. Sure, let's just say it. And I am a young woman who said, I don't have to follow your chain of commands. I don't have to follow your rules. If I want to be my own boss, I'm going to do it and I'm going to do it well mm. and I'm going to challenge everything that you think you know. And in doing that, I have uh, I started my own business 12 months ago, and these have been some of the most incredibly lonely 12 months of my life. Fighting for a fight where you feel like maybe you're giving more than you're getting back. You wonder if you're even making a dent in the industry that you're trying to create a, a dam in, let alone a dent. And I just wonder, you know, you wanted to call this uh, loneliness and activism, and I feel like an activist in my own way. Uh, you're a pioneer. Thank you. And I just wonder, you know, after 12 months, I looked at my husband last night and I said, I'm tired. I'm so tired of opening my home and opening my heart and pushing and not feeling like I'm getting it back. And I wonder how the hell have you done this for decade after decade after decade? And, and, uh, uh, just tell me, because I want to. Well, I mean, <laughs> I, I was going to comment on Alan, but it really applies to both, uh, Ethan and your story. Don't fix something that's not broken. Ethan's not broken. You're not broken. And the more you try to fix Ethan or make it okay for Ethan, the more it's going to separate him. Because yeah. he's going to feel broken. Mm. And that's the way I felt when they tried to fix me, make me normal, make me, you know, I would find out his favorite thing, whether it's animals or playing the violin, and make him the best at it. Just throw him into his favorite thing. Yeah, but and when then you're all... parents, you just want to protect them too. You do, and I think, I mean, that is really an issue right now because clearly you were talking about as one gets older, they become more lonely in, in many ways too, but then you reflected on your time when you were young and obviously yeah. Ethan as well. This often starts very early on for folks, and if they're different in any way, they feel lonely, they feel left out, they feel uncomfortable. They're different and they're lonely because How? of it, but they're not broke. I agree yes. 100%. Yes. So, but what can you do? I think that is a perfect differentiator. It's beautiful to say that. But they're still lonely. That doesn't mean they're broken. But how do we help our young people have the skills and the knowledge and the abilities to deal with a world where they feel personal responsibility? Okay. And, and you say, what do you like? Okay. What do you like? You're a pioneer. Uh, what is Ethan like? Then throw him in it so he becomes so good at it because he loves it that he will attract the others hmm. on his yes. terms, on his terms, oh. not on your and Matt's and not on their terms in the casting. I, I'm going to tell you a story. I had a, a mentor who was a poet. And when I was young, he was my age now, or younger actually. And... I had a terrible fear of heights. <laughs> terrible fear of heights <laughs> at the time. 
And he had a house, summer home, that had a football-sized field of seagrass, and then it went to the Pacific Ocean and dropped down the kind of cliff you see the cars oh, tumble yeah. down in movies and yeah. uh-huh. exploding like frames. Style. Yeah. And so every time they'd go out to watch these beautiful sunsets on the Pacific, I would go in and start pre- helping uh, prepare for dinner because I wasn't going to get near that cliff. And I thought if I busied myself with something else in the house, no one would know about my fear of heights because I was a young buck, 23, and I was surrounded by wise and successful people, and I didn't want to show them that I had fear mm. of any kind. Well, like I could fool them, right? Right. Uh, so one day, there was the most beautiful sunset that this poet and I had ever seen, and we were struck by the ironic fact that the reason it was so beautiful is that there was radiation in the air from open-air open nuclear testing that had created the most magnificent sunset that either of us had seen. And we couldn't help but think of William Butler Yeats as a terrible beauty is born, mm-hmm. a line from Easter Sunday, 1916. And he was sick and he was rocking. And it reminds me of my life a little bit today. And he said, David, I gotta get up. And so I helped him up. And he took my hand strongly. And instead of going into the house where I thought he was gonna go in and lay down and rest, he started walking me across that seagrass. Mm. Mm. And I was so terrified the closer we got to the cliff, I literally wet myself. I was shaking like a leaf, but I was too proud to tell him, no, no, I can't go. And he knew I would be. Mm. And we got to the edge of that damn cliff, and I'm telling you, sand's falling down out underneath my feet. And then he said, this is where we all belong. On the edge. He said, by the law of physics, David, no one can stand in front of you because they'll fall. And he said, so you will be able to see colors of the sunset that no one else will be able to see. This goes to you and your casting director. And that's your choice in life. You can be the one that walks through your fears, gets to the edge, Mm. And be the one who describes the colors of the sunset to the others who can't see it because of fear. Or you can back on that porch and have the colors of the sunset described to you by someone else. Hmm. One of the most valuable pieces of lessons. You're in your casting work or what you're doing with your children are creating colors of the sunset. And your actions will be the one who defines it for those who follow you. Hmm. Uh, now, it is lonely. Mm. And even your husband's not going to understand what you're going through, or even those who love you the most. You just have to understand that goes with being a pioneer. It's like a coal miner who goes into the mine, they're going to get black lung. It's, you would like them not to. I'd like not to be lonely. But I have chosen and will embrace my responsibility for having joy in my life and describe the colors of the sunset and you're not broken you see everybody wants you to think you're broken or Ethan's broken Mm -hmm. Ethan's probably a genius at some level because he's been forced to create that inside of himself to survive Mm -hmm. he's not broken far from it my guess is he's stronger than any of those kids right now 
And it's you to find out the outlet that will enable him to thrive, that will attract the others who want to hear him describe the colors of whatever his sunset is. Hmm. Wow. I don't know I if that makes sense. love sitting and talking to you. You are not kidding. I think we could do this forever <laughs> and ever and ever. Um, you don't have plans for the rest of the day, do you, David? <laughs> yes, I do, <laughs> the rest as a matter of fact. <laughs> Maybe the rest of your life, because this is amazing. This is what happens when you have lunch with David Mixner. You And by the way, there's something about you also, David, that, you know, for a man who, um, you know, who's... You know, who's lonely and has charted this own course. When you meet people, they just can't help to be near you. David goes to a restaurant, the Glasshouse Tavern, probably one of the best, like you know, spots in the city for food. He goes there so often they made a corner for him that says Mixner's Corner. They went there so often they made a Mixner chicken salad. Uh, they did David. not. They did. I go there all the time. They, I'm going to look for that. They, okay. they, <laughs> if I ask for it, will they know? They'll know right where Mixner's Corner is, and they'll notice that. <laughs> There's a little sign that's right I up on the corner, right in the that. window. Of course. Um, and it's a, and but you attract that, so I think you're open to it, and I think that's part well, of Well, you know, I mean, look. There's not one of us around this table who isn't trying to make this world a better place in our own right. Not Amen. one of us. We all have Amen. that in common. That's why we admire each other and respect each other and can laugh and and tell silly-ass stories about <laughs> ourselves. But, you know, that's a common bond. Uh, your loneliness is no different than mine. In, you know, being a pioneer among women in the casting industry. You know, and I know, there's very few. And those who have been successful grew up in an age where they didn't pass it on. And you're trying to create it where you pass it on. That's a big difference. You know, you're trying to change the way things are done, not uh, succeed with their rules, yes. but your own rules. And, uh, and Alan, my God, I don't, can't even imagine my life without you in it. Uh, because he takes care of me. You know, as a son would take care of a father, and I'm very grateful. And his children, I adore. And wait till you see what I got them this year. I'm very excited, <laughs> Christmas and with, with Uncle David. It's only one gift they have to share, but they're going to love it. I think. You know that kind of relationship that that you two share, and what you just said, for so many people is what they're looking for when they say they're lonely and they don't have anyone to actually share with and be vulnerable with. Um, and they're missing something because that, that kind of definition of loneliness is about what we need versus what we have mm. in terms of that fulfilling relationship piece. And for you, someone like Alan fills that void that in so many respects probably has been so large at times in your life mm. in terms of that. I, I point out that mm. issues and ideology don't visit you in the hospital. People do. People do. That is such it's a good people. line. I just want to repeat that. Issues and ideology don't visit you in a hospital. People do. People do. I mean, that's such a... Be there. Yeah. I just think Show something up. simple. But Show exactly. up. But, but, Be also, up. but also opening your mind, right? Yes. I mean, yeah. I say to somebody, yeah. they said, name your five... Like, I used to have, you know, tons of people around, right? But if I said to you, who were like five, do I have five are the closest friends. I'm lucky enough to do, but David's right on the list. And I'll say, someone said, well, who's David? If you run down the list and I'll describe who David is. And they said, well, you're with somebody, you know, he's like generations older than you. Is it like a real friendship or just someone who like, you just like visit like or see I'm like David's a true and dear friend. And the idea is I make you a bet that there are older folks 
in the gay community who would see David with so many younger friends and are probably like, oh, he has those young guys around because he wants to sleep with all of them. And David, As if I had the energy. <laughs> <laughs> and we David, talked about your health already. <laughs> but David's been open about saying, I don't necessarily want to be with the people of my generation, but I really am interested in seeing the other, and I'm going to be generous about what yeah. I can teach, and I'm also going to be open about what I could learn. And for me, I think one of the best or greatest blessings of our friendship is that there is this reciprocity and that both of us are open to saying, huh, it may feel unconventional to someone else, but this feels so natural for for us. And David, I just have to say, I think, you know, it's hard to imagine my life with you not in it. Yeah. Lawrence of Arabia says in the sand as he was out in the desert and he would write something, a word in the sand, and the sand would blow over the word, and he says, nothing is written. Mm. Mm. And that, look, I've been dealt a bad hand. I did lost 300 friends. I did 90 eulogies in two years. I could really go a long ways with that in pity party. So, and Alan's right. I, I don't want to go to bed with him. I like my own people my own age. I wish I had him around to reminisce. I've had my periods of depression about it. But instead, I realized that young people, because there's so many fewer of my generation, are starved for mentors. Mm. Yes, yes. That is so important. And so I said, okay, I was allowed to survive HIV and AIDS for a reason. Mm. That is to pass on the history, which I do from my shows and my books, Mm -hmm. and to find people who I have great faith in, like Alan, and do my best to pass on whatever gifts and lessons I've learned on this, quite honestly, remarkable journey that I've had. And so that's my role. And you can look at what you don't have, or you can look at why you're here and how to turn it into something. Mm. You know, it's really interesting you would say that. As, as we think of this, this project that we're working on that we're talking about today, the Cost of Loneliness Project, our logo is a Venn diagram with three circles in it. One being a sense of purpose, which is mm-hmm. what you just said, and you, you said it in such an eloquent way. Perhaps your journey has been all about, in so many ways, not only helping those along the way, but helping those now and for the future. The, one of the other ones is about community, that group around you that you belong to and feel good with. And the other piece of this is exactly what you said, the, the reciprocal intimacy, mm-hmm. where you really have that deep friendship, where you share and think. And you've actually talked about all three today in such an amazingly eloquent way. And don't what forget a, a sense of humor. <laughs> well, I think that may be the most important of all. <laughs> it <don't> is. <laughs> Laughter is the most... Uh, Norman Cousins, who used to be publisher or editor of the Saturday Review, which nobody will remember, but it was one of the great intellectual... <laughs> Lucy's raised Lucy's her hand. I, I, know. I, know. I know. This is not a visual thing, but yeah. I raised my hand. <laughs> and he wrote a book about... And he was uh, had a lot of illness... And how laughter cured it, humor cured it, and uh, you know you gotta laugh because there's so, the world with Donald Trump and the Roy Moore's and the difficult things that are happening in our country right now, the very challenging, challenging things. We're not gonna get through it unless we create a community of of free spirits who are willing to be pioneers, who are willing to laugh at oneself and create a community that attracts those who have lived in a community of fear that have been exploited by those 
who want power. Mm. Oh, and David, you know, there's this, there's this, um, there's this line in "Call Me by Your Name." I mean, I know I'm pointing at you right just now. Just don't put it towards his chest. There's a line in "Call Me by Your Name," which is so par- amazing. Oh. Amazing. One of my favorite and movies of all go, time. We can go into movies in theater right go now. Go read the go, book. Run, run, see the, the movie <laughs> and beg for a sequel. Um, there's a line at the end when the father's talking to the son and oh, says, God, "We try right. so hard to cure everything so fast." that it leaves us bankrupt by the age of 30 and we have even less to give to the next person we meet. And I just have to say that 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 is, with everything you have endured in 60 years of activism, that is not you. Because you have been in it. You have felt it and been in it. Not just been in it, but the ways through, whether it's Stranger Among Friends or the book that you wrote about your time in upstate New York, or the theater that you're doing in these wonderful, brilliantly done one-man shows, all of them are about still being in it. And in doing so, it's part lesson and part permission slip to the rest of us <laughs> to be in it. It's, and and, and it's, it's, it's like, you know, a professional development person would say that's good modeling. But like from a human perspective, that is great modeling about how to be in it. You are it's not it. difficult because there is a model for all of us. Don't be like our oppressors. Mm. Don't be Donald Trump's. Don't be Roy Moore's. Don't hate operate from a place of love. If they operate from a place I hate, I operate from a place of love. If they don't embrace people and hug them, I hug them and embrace them. Mm. Uh, We have good role models, including those that we don't want to become. And even on a personal basis, quite honestly, I never wanted to become angry like my father, who I understood as anger. But I think I've lost my temper maybe three times in my life. Mm. You know? And it's not been easy. But if we look at what we dislike, that helps us to define who we want to be. And I think on that note, Mm -hmm. this has been truly one of the most incredible conversations I think I've ever had in my entire life. And I am so, it makes me want to Me too, and I'm just so blessed it got recorded. (laughs) Can you imagine? We were here. so (laughs) grateful that you exist and that you have existed. Here, here. And I hope to see you again. All of us. <laughs> Thank and you. I, I am, None I'm, of us can do this alone. We're all, all four of us, all of the, your listeners out there, you have the responsibility. The only question is whether you step up to the plate and accept it. I hmm. think that's a call to action. Thank you, David. Thank you, David. Thank you, Thank you. Thank you all. Thank you. If you have a story to share or know someone who might want to chat with us, feel free to visit our website at www.thecostofloneliness.org slash and. And if you haven't yet, please like and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and leave us a little comment. It helps our ratings and helps us get more stories like this to you.